Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Earth 2 podcast, the podcast that explores the origins and development of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. Yes, Peter Watson, this is the Earth 2 podcast. It does all those things. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Now, listeners, I've really been looking forward to this episode. Mm-hmm. As have I. Yeah, good. I hope so too. This week, we are <laughs> doing issues 78 and 79 of Justice League of America. There's going to be quite a few Justice League of America's all in this little stretch that we're going to be doing together, which is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. 78 and 79, because they deal with the return of another DC Comics Golden Age superhero character. Or maybe at least an adventurer, if not a superhero as such. Issue 78 and 79, Justice League of America, reintroduce a Golden Age DC Comics character called the Vigilante. Yay! Now, before you, you give everyone some background on Vigilante, let's do the thing mm-hmm. when I ask you if you can remember the first time you encountered Vigilante. Should we do that? Let's do that, yes. Cool. Can you remember the first time you encountered the Vigilante? No. Really? <laughs> No, I'm de- now, actually, I wasn't expecting this question, although I should have expected this question. <laughs> yes, you should have. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Uh, I genuinely can't remember. Right. I think I was aware of him before All-Star Squadron. Right. I must have been aware of the Seven Soldiers of Victory at some point, which we'll go on to later on. But um, no, I honestly can't remember. What about yourself? Well, I'm pretty sure it was whichever early issue of Young All-Stars it was you know, the mm. sequel series mm-hmm. to, or the continuation series of All Star Squadron, the post crisis continuation of All Star Squadron. I think it's, I can't remember if it's issue two or issue three when you see everyone all lined up mm-hmm. and Vigilante stood quite near Mister Terrific and Sargon or someone like that, and you know, yeah, the cowboy guy. And I remember being all right. I think it was most likely the early issue of Young All Stars where either Iron Monroe or whoever it was is taken to mm. the hemisphere or whatever you call it. Fascinating, yes. And you see mm-hmm. the line-up. So yes, so Vigilante, yes. Mm-hmm. Would you like to tell everyone about the Golden Age Vigilante? I'd be delighted. Now, the original Vigilante was a Western-themed hero who was created by writer Mort Weisinger and artist Mort Meskin. He debuted in Action Comics number 42, and that came out on the 24th of September 1941, and he appeared in every single issue of Action Comics until... Issue 198, and that was September the 29th, 1954. Wow. My goodness. Yeah. That's ages. Mm-hmm. That's shortly before Barry Allen first appearing, ushering in the Silver Age. That's, that's really interesting. He outlived loads of people then. Yeah. I suppose maybe perhaps because he was one of these sort of backup guys that the, the editors and writers were fond of and could just keep using. Yeah, and perhaps because he wasn't like a standard traditional superhero. He was more like a, an urban vigilante kind of thing. It's it uh-huh. something a bit different. Yeah. Yeah, not quite. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, far removed from the likes of Green Lantern and Flash, obviously. But anyway. Absolutely, yes. Now, his real name was Greg Sanders. Now, the spelling was changed to Greg Saunders with a U in the 1990s. That's right. He was the grandson of a Native American fighter and the son of a sheriff in Wyoming. Now Sanders, as a young man, moved east to New York and became a country singer. Radio's Prairie Troubadour, as he was known. Greg returned to his home after his father was killed, bringing to justice the gang of bandits who killed him. Now, the vigilante had a couple of sidekicks to aid him in his crime fighting. Most well-known is Stuff the Chinatown Kid, who was introduced in Action Comics number 45. But he also had a recurring sidekick in the form of Billy Gunn, 
Not to be confused with the wrestler Billy Gunn. Yeah, Google him if you like. He was an older man who was a former stage performer who loved the Old West, but he never actually went there. Interesting. Now, the vigilante didn't have any powers. However, he was an excellent brawler. He was a trick shooter with his guns. He was a sharpshooter. He was a horseman and a motorcycle rider. And, most importantly, he was an expert with his lariat. He also, amusingly enough, relied heavily on his spurs, which he used nearly every single story to do amazing things like cut ropes or create sparks to start fires. I'm trying to think if I've ever actually read one of his Golden Age stories, and I don't think I have. Isn't that <gasps> terrible? I must have read, you know, I've read some of the Seven Soldiers, mm. but I don't think I've ever read a solo Craig Sanders story. That's terrible. Oh, they're exciting. Needless to say, he also had a wonderful singing voice. In fact, he was asked to front the Earth 2 version of the band Menswear. <laughs> this may or may not be true. Oh, I can feel a Photoshop moment coming on. <laughs> now... Although he mostly fought ordinary criminals, he also had quite a few foes that could be considered real supervillains. These include the Dummy, who was a brilliant weapons inventor and professional killer who resembled a ventriloquist dummy in both size and facial features. Also the Rainbow Man, who committed crimes with a colour motif. And, interestingly enough, he also fought the Fiddler and the Shade. Yes, because we have a vague plan to do the story where he fought his version of the Shade, because it's mm-hmm. it's a different version of the Shade to the one that came back in Flash 1, 2, 3 and JLA 21, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is, and it's a different fiddler as well. Yeah, it's fascinating. These are totally unrelated to the established villains, Fiddler and Shade. They are yeah. completely different. It's, it's incredible. It's really yeah. interesting. The, I, I believe the Shade story takes place over two issues. Um, we are planning to do that at some point, listeners. Don't worry, we will do it at some point. He was also a member of the team known as the Seven Soldiers of Victory, also known as the Laws Legionnaires, which is actually the term I prefer. They are one of the early superheroes teams that appeared in leading comics. Now, the Vigilante, as I said, ran all that time in action comics and was was quite a popular character. So popular, in fact, that in 1947, Columbia Pictures brought out a movie serial of him. Of course. In it, they changed a few things. He was a masked government agent assigned to investigate the case of the 100 Tears of Blood, which was a cursed string of rare blood-red pearls sought by a gang led by the unknown X-1. Interesting. That may have been smuggled into the country. Did it have any scenes of things being melted and cave walls melting and people going over cliffs and jeeps? <laughs> Did it have scenes like those? Because every movie serial I've ever seen seems to have, have seen those scenes in there. It had, yeah, very similar ones to that, yeah. <laughs> In the serial, Greg Sanders is an actor who is filming a western on a ranch. In the serial version, Stuff became a Caucasian character. Right. Who was a sidekick played by George Offerman Jr. Vigilante, of course, was played by Ralph Bird, who also played Dick Tracy. That's quite exciting. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Now, the director, Wallace Fox, he actually, interestingly enough, makes a cameo appearance as the director filming Greg Sanders' movie on the ranch. That's excellent. Which I think is absolutely amazing. <laughs> I love that. I do have a copy of the Vigilante serial, and uh, it's it's not the best copy. It's not the best quality. It hasn't survived very well, but uh, it is really interesting to check out. Mm. Also, speaking of checking things out, if you like the Vigilante and want to find out more, you should check out the excellent Prairie Justice podcast done by Ranger Gord, where he's covering lots of the Vigilante stories from the Golden Age. So yeah, yes. shout out to Ranger Gord. Strong recommend on that one. He puts a lot of work into it. It's, a, it's an excellent podcast. In fact, here's Ranger God himself to tell you all about the show. You're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast. 
You heard right, partners. The vigilante rides again. From across the western plains and into the streamlined east flashes a mystery rider, symbolic of the spirit of frontier America. The vigilante, heroic champion of law and order, who battles 20th century criminals with weapons of the range in a ceaseless one-man stampede against all lawlessness. Follow the victory of the Prairie Troubadour, Greg Saunders, and his alter ego, the Vigilante, as he rounds up public enemy number one with smoking six-guns and twirling lariat. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante podcast, climbs into the saddle on Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Gord. So, with all that in mind, we're going to kick off with the first of the two comics that we're covering in this week's episode. We're not doing full reads. I'm going to be summarising mm-hmm. some of the plots on each issue so that we can squeeze them all in, basically. But issue 78 was published on the 11th of December, 1969. We're nearly at the end of the 60s. How exciting. Pete Yes. do you want to tell everyone about the cover? I'd be delighted. This is great, this cover, because on the left-hand side we have, for a change, a roll call going mm. down with headshots of the Justice Leaguers involved in the story. And they are Superman. Batman. Flash. Black Canary. Green Lantern. The Arrow. Green Arrow. Fantastic. I love these little headshot roll calls. They're terrific. Yeah, usually they're splash page things, but you don't usually get it in the cover. Yeah, they're like an elongated, stretched out, ironed out version of the old X-Men corner box I remember from my youth, when all their heads (laughs) were scrunched up in the corner. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) perhaps that inspired the corner box. Hmm. Yeah, it's cool, and it's it's a bit of a, a fixture for the next year or mm-hmm. so on on the book, so it's nice. Yeah, obviously, mm-hmm. when with each issue that we do, we'll tell you the roll call. <laughs> Lots of fun, of course. That's just the side part, and on the rest of the cover, we have what appears to be a giant spaceship mm. above the Earth, and it's beaming up, and what possibly I could describe as a transporter tube. It's beaming up. Black Canary and Green Arrow and the rest of the leaguers seem to be walking towards it. And we have a look at the scene around us and we have, it looks like a fact, say there's tons of pollution coming off of these big smokestacks. Yes, big tall chimneys with clouds of black smoke belching out into the sky. It's fantastic. It's not fantastic, but it's very effective. There's lots of unconscious civilians lying about the place. One man's falling in the background, obviously overcome with the pollution. Hmm. And we have the vigilante himself on a motorbike. Yep. He's shaking a fist at the Justice League, and he says... I'm disgusted with you, Justice League. How can you quit Earth at a time like this? It's I mean, it's Gil Kane, isn't it, that drew this cover? Oh, yes. It's You can kind of tell because of a slight tilt to proceedings. You, you, know, you can tell by looking at Superman's face that it's, that it's, it's Kane. fantastic, yeah. Everyone's very lean and fit, and Black Canary's hair looks a bit shorter than it should be. It was only literally whilst I was making my notes for this episode that I realised that the the big sort of spaceship thing that's beaming everyone up, that's the Justice League satellite, isn't it? Spoilers! (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is. Uh Because that's something that's introduced in this issue, listeners. It certainly is, yeah. Not only is it the reintroduction of Vigilante after a, well, a 15-year gap, it's the debut of the the satellite era of the Justice League. I think it's safe to say we're firmly in the Bronze Age now. I think we, we are. Yep, definitely, definitely. It's, that's, that's actually an interesting cut-off point that no one really brings up. You know, yeah. As soon as the satellite appears. Yeah, satellite that's, that's so good. Yeah. 
the whole differentiation between the silver and bronze age is very muddy. You know, it's it's not yeah. an instant cut off point, but yeah, this is definitely something you could make a case for. Yeah, yeah. As we said recently, this was around about the time of the first publication of the Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill series, all kind of kicking mm-hmm. off. A change is upon us. It certainly is. Definitely. It certainly is. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like this cover. I love how the, the satellite is rendered in sort of green, so it contrasts against the dark clouds of smoke belching out the, the chimneys. Yes. And, as you said, the, the unconscious, perhaps even dead people lying around. It's like, you know, it certainly mm-hmm. seems as if there's some kind of catastrophe taking place. And it's very interesting themes that are discussed over these two issues, very relevant even to, to what's going on in the world right now as we speak. Mm-hmm. So, with no further ado, shall we start the story proper? Let's go for it. Awesome. Page one of JLA issue 78. Panel one has a caption. Night has fallen on Star City. A night is bleak and chill as a dream of death. A solitary figure moves through the jungle of the slums. Vigilant. Alert. And we see the silhouette of Green Arrow, new improved goatee beard Green Arrow, standing on a railing, hanging onto a fire escape, up high, side of a building, looking around. Looks like a bit of a foggy, mucky night. Green Arrow is thinking to himself. Smog's so thick, it's like patrolling in a sack. Can't see a thing. He continues to think in panel two. But I can hear. And there are a couple of bam-bam sound effects. He leaps into action, thinking... Gunshots! Coming from the direction of that new factory. Somebody needs help, fast! In panel three, we see that he's obviously touched down on the ground, and there's a bit of action going on in front of him. He thinks... A watchman, having a shootout with thugs... Yeah, we see a, a blue uniformed figure, cap, fitted shirt, firing a gun, a couple of shadowy figures in the background. Blam, blam sound effects blare out as they're obviously firing back at him. Green Arrow thinks, He's holding his own, but the odds are against him, way against. He can't see to fight, and neither can I. Yeah, because the smog and the, the mucky air is all around. The final panel of page one, Oliver draws an arrow, attaches it to his bow, and thinks, Maybe a flare arrow will shed some needed light on the smoggy situation. And then the first panel of page two has a caption that says, Whistling upward, the shaft shatters into a dazzling incandescence. Yep, that's what we see. The burst of light radiating out from the exploding arrowhead. The caption for panel two. Bathing the battleground below in hazy illumination. Yeah, this is very effective, actually, because it almost looks as though there's an, you know, that oily quality that car headlights have when you see them shining through fog. Ah, yes. You can see mm-hmm. there's a sort of real sort of hazy illumination is the best way of putting it. Hazy illumination, actually, now that I think of it. They supported menswear at the um, the Birmingham Foundry in 1996. Mm. The hazy illumination casts a little bit of light over the people that the, the night watchman is wearing. We can see they all look fairly similar. They're all wearing brown suits and brown fedora-style hats. And we see in panel two, the night watchman taking a kick at one of them as he says, This is some like it. Once I get a look at these sidewinders, I can settle with them. And then one of the bad guys, who the Night Watchman has knocked into a, a dustbin, he says, Shoot him! And obviously there's some kablam sound effects in the next panel as the Night Watchman, he fires back at his assailants, shooting the guns out of their hands, actually, as he says, You worries are a mite slow on the trigger, hey! Green Arrow looks on in panel four at all this action taking place and he thinks, He needs my help like he needs measles. It's all over but for the finishing touches. Yes, and we can see it's very effective, actually. It's really, really nice that we see the silhouetted forms of the this night watchman punching out the, the bad guys as Green Arrow looks on, again with the sort of hazy illumination from this flare. To, it's very atmospheric. Yeah, it's all in silhouette and heavy inks. It's fantastic. Well, yeah, it's great. The final panel of page two, then, is captioned. Never has Green Arrow been more mistaken. 
the most bizarre exploit is only beginning, for the blazing arrow falls into a nearby river. Yeah, that's what we see. They see the arrow falling into a nearby river, still radiating off. And then page three is a full panel splash as the caption continues. And a moment later, the water erupts in a sheet of flame. Within instance, the inferno threatens to swallow the surrounding buildings. Deadly though the menace is, it is but the first of many that will take the Justice League of America from the docks of Star City to a ruined planet, unimaginably distant, and force the world's greatest superheroes to combat the coming coming of the the Doomsters. Yes, it's a startling image, very, very effective. I look forward to putting this on the socials. Basically, all the text that Pete's just read out there is sort of written in the flames that are burning on the top of the river. We can see the ladder leading down to the, the surface of the water from the from the dock. We can see the, the sky mm-hmm. very dark with the flames letting it up and there's buildings nearby. It's very, very effective. Obviously, the river's caught fire because it's heavily polluted, I'm guessing. We are told that the story is by Denny O'Neill. And the art's by Dick Dillon and Joe Giella. Fantastic. So, over the page to the first panel of page four, we're back with Green Arrow, who's thinking, This is more than I can handle solo. I'll signal the JLA and hope the right guys answer. Yes, we see in his left hand, he's activating a little signal device. And then a caption for panel two. Then, in answer to the Emerald Archer's unspoken prayer. Yes, Green Lantern, Hal Jordan and Superman have arrived. Green Lantern says, Is that river really on fire or am I having a blasted nightmare? The Arrow replies, No nightmare, Green Lantern. Don't ask me how or why. Just do something about it before Star City becomes a smoky memory. Superman says helpfully. We're on our way. In panel three, we see Superman and Green Lantern flying up above the burning river. Pointing down, Superman says, The wind's pushing the flame toward the shopping district. I'll take care of that. GL says, And I'll attack the source of the fire. The final panel of page four. Brilliant shot of Superman flying around in a circle to create a vortex. As he does so, he thinks... By flying at around 10,000 miles an hour, I can create a counterwind. Reverse the direction of the breezes. This sort of stunt used to be my staple. Recently, the stuff I've been doing has been a whole lot more complicated. Traffic. First panel, page 5. We see him flying down towards some burning buildings. And he's thinking, Mission accomplished. But I see another problem. Burning debris ignited several buildings. And then he continues to describe his actions in panel 2, as he thinks. Moving at super speed, it shouldn't take more than half a second to stamp out every bonfire in sight. Sure enough, that's what the Metropolis Marvel does. It's almost like he's leaping from each building to each building in a single bound. The caption for panel 3 of page 5. Meanwhile, Green Lantern's power ring has formed a gargantuan extinguisher. Yes, proper classic Green Lantern power ring action here. You see how gesturing, forming a massive fire extinguisher, a massive funnel... Green Lantern thinks, I'll will the ring to convert air to carbon dioxide, which I'll spray over the surface of the burning river and smother the flames. Yep, and that's what we see. Very, very effective. Brilliant. Final panel of page five is a cracker. I'm already struggling to think what panels I'll put on Instagram. (laughs) We shall see. So, we arrive at the top of page six. Green Lantern and Superman alighting beside Green Arrow. Green Lantern says, We did it. The last time we teamed as firemen... And Superman continues. We failed miserably. Of that, I don't need reminding. And an asterisk takes us to the bottom of this panel, and a caption says, Editor's note, Superman and the Lantern are recalling the horrible events related in Justice League issue 71. I can't remember anything about issue 71. I know we did a little bit in issue 72. We did 73 and 74 and 75. Mm-hmm. 
Issue 71, I can't remember. Maybe by the end of the episode we'll we'll have looked something up. Okay. Green Arrow then says to his compatriots, You fellas can rehash past cases later. Now, why don't we get away from those fumes? And he continues in the next panel as Green Lantern bears him into the sky and Superman flies up beside him. I noticed something which might explain why water burned, but it'll take some thinking. And as they fly off, the silhouette of the Night Watchman runs after them, crying, Wait! And we can see that he's waving a square shape in his hand. The final panel of page six is a shot of the Night Watchman with the fog behind him, closing in, and we can see that he's holding a briefcase, brown leather briefcase. The Watchman looks up into the sky and he thinks, They didn't hear me. Dang. i got to find him. All future of the human race may depend on it. And a caption closes out page six, saying, Long-time readers who feel they have deduced identity of the Watchmen can verify their conclusion after a one-page break. And so we arrive on page seven. Now I'm going to summarise the next few pages, listeners, because we're trying to squeeze in two issues of the comic and two issues worth of letters and a recap and bit of chat about Vigilante. So, <laughs> on page seven, Green Arrow, Green Lantern and Superman land on the roof of a publishing company that, open inverted commas, always bugs them for stories. So this must be the, the equivalent of DC Comics. <laughs> yes. One one. Uh-huh. Green Arrow then takes his first trip in a Justice League of America transport tube up to the new Justice League of America satellite. You see our first shot of the satellite in space. It looks very, very effective. We'll probably put that on the socials. Mm-hmm. And we learn that the Justice League have to attend a public appearance in Star City. We see the Night Watchman from the opening scene reading about this event in the Star City Gazette, and he realises this will be an opportunity for him to contact the League. The Watchman then gets attacked in a drive-by shooting by the same sort of mysterious figures who he was fighting at the start of the comic. The Watchman shoots out a tyre and the car crashes, and the men in the car emerge unharmed and talk about their leader being unhappy. And they also say that the accursed one has again escaped. And as I say, these guys are clearly... If not the same people, they're very like the guys that the Watchmen was fighting Mm -hmm. at the start of the comic. Black Canary is introduced to the public. Remember, she's newly arrived in Earth 1, as we covered recently. Black Canary is introduced to the public at this big fancy ballroom event, which is crashed by the Watchmen, who's been followed by the goons who attacked him earlier. Black Canary leaps to help him, but the goons fire their energy guns at her. Green Lantern conjures a protective shield, and Canary and Batman take out the baddies themselves. Suddenly, Superman's X-ray vision alerts him that the downed bad guys are about to explode. Superman hurls himself forward as a massive foam sound effect and he shields everyone from the explosion. And at this point, we resume reading with page 14, panel 3. Superman is standing over the, the distorted wreckage, that's the only word for it, of one of the exploding figures. And he's saying, They were fantastically intricate automatons, programmed to self-destruct upon capture. The Night Watchman says, it figures. And Batman, with a very interesting expression, says, You don't seem surprised? I ain't, replies the Watchman. Let's get private, and I'll tell you why. And he reaches down and starts picking up some very odd-looking guns. One of them actually looks like a food mixer. <laughs> One looks like part of a kettle. Mm. They're obviously, they belonged to the, the guys that they'd just been fighting. And the Night Watchman says, I'll take these irons. They might come in handy. And then... The caption for the next panel says, They do get private at the JLA satellite, and the Justice Leaguers hear a story spoken in a soft, melodious drawl. Yep, we're on the JLA satellite. The Watchman is still in his Watchman uniform. We can see Batman, Superman, Black Canary, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and Hawkman. 
You can see the atom standing on Batman's shoulder. The watchman is saying, I was hired on as a watchman in that new factory. Place worked full days and nights, going like sixty. Pretty unpleasant round there, with those big smokestacks filling the air with soot. Got so my eyes rose watering, and my lungs felt like death valley. The next page is so narrated by the watchman. We have that little stalk thing that we're all used to know of the inset head. And this final panel of page 14, there's a shot of the watchman in uniform with a handkerchief up to his face, and we see the smokestacks in the chimneys behind him belching out the nasty, the nasty smoke. His narration continues at the top of page 15. Pretty soon I noticed there were several tons of gunk pouring into the river each hour. Poison. Deadly poison. We see him looking over the railing to a pipe, and sure enough, there's liquid pouring out into the river. Obviously, this reminds us of <laughs> what Tyler Cole were up to in that issue showcase a couple of years ago. Yes. Oh, Rex Tyler. I don't know. I know. Shakes fist. The Watchman's narration continues. I made conversation with some of the Rennies who were working inside, asked them what kind of products they were making, and none of them knew. And we see the Watchman talking to an overall gloved, goggled, cap-wearing figure. And then we get a nice shot of him, panel three, as he says, Hombre name of Sherlock Holmes said that after you eliminate the impossible, anything left has got to be the truth, no matter how loco. And it was plenty loco, because what that factory was manufacturing was nothing except pollution. It was there to deliberately foul the air and water. Seemed all right to bend the law, mate, so I swiped a bunch of papers from the office and lit out. Those owl hoots burned my trail. So I shot the watchman making his escape with a folder in his hand being chased by the brown-hatted and brown-suited figures who we've seen earlier in the story. The flashback ripple ends, and we see the watchman talking to Green Arrow, saying, oh, and that's when you showed up, Green Arrow. Reckon you know the rest. Almost. We were so busy we forgot to determine the cause of the river's burning. Obviously the fire was caused by chemicals in it. Another thing I noticed, the flames weren't touching the factory. It must have been protected by some sort of force field. And we reach page 16 as Green Arrow continues. You're no more an ordinary watchman than I'm a hairdresser. Who are you, anyway? And we see, a very clever, nice device here, that there's a sort of thought bubble coming from the watchman. He's always having a memory. And in this memory, we see a white hat wearing, red face, scarf, blue shirt wearing figure, astride a sort of, well, how would you describe it? <laughs> a blue hover motorbike type shape. A rather retro futuristic looking motorbike, yes. Yeah. And the watchman says out loud to Green Arrow, I go by the handle of Greg Saunders. Time was when I was in your line, for Al Hoots is the vigilante. So there we are. In panel two, the Atom, standing on the table in front of Greg Sanders, who's the watchman has now been revealed to be, looks up at him and says, The vigilante? I've often wondered what happened to the prairie troubadour. Vigilante is spreading out some of the papers that he stole, and he says, I got weary, decided to retire, but never mind me. These papers I grabbed are a heap more important. And we see in the next panel that the Atom and Superman and Green Lantern are all studying the papers. We can see diagrams and plans. The Atom says, These are chemical formulae for acid, grease, smoke. Superman chips in saying, And this is a star map. Green Lantern says, One of the planets in the Sirius system is circled. We can see that right enough. In the next panel, the Atom leaps from the table onto Green Arrow's shoulder as Superman says, I suggest we separate. GL and I will investigate Sirius. The Atom pipes up with, and eventually the rest of us to the factory. Green Arrow concludes proceedings by saying, Not me. I'm going to call in the city manager and give him some choice remarks about what's happening to his fair burg. Awesome. So, the first panel of page 17 is captioned thus. Soon after, Green Arrow strides into the Star City Hall. 
Yes, we see him walking up the big flight of steps into the city hall. We can see the, the base of the columns. All very nice. Pretty much what you'd expect. As he walks up the stairs, Oliver is thinking, The city manager's critically ill. I'll have to deal with this one mistake. He blundered big when he hired Jason Crass as second-in-command. I've never decided whether Crass is crooked or just stupid. What's the term? Is it performative determination or something when someone's name anticipates how yes. they end up working, how their character is, something like that? Indeed, you know? yes. Mm. You know, <laughs> Peter in his youth was the sidekick to Sherlock Holmes. Of course, yes. As you'd expect from someone called Watson. And in your youth, you were an alloy, which is quite interesting. Yes, yeah, I, I hung around with, with Joanna Lumley and David Collings. It was it was great fun. Mm -hmm. Panel two is captioned. Then, inside... And we see Green Arrow sat down opposite the desk from the aforementioned Jason Crass. Jason Crass is a balding, mustachioed, suited figure. His face looks kind of droopy the first time we see him. It doesn't look very dynamic at all. But he's saying, Speak your piece, Arrow. I'm a busy man, though not too busy to shave, unlike some. See, he's rubbing his chin. <laughs> Quite amusing when he says that. Green Arrow replies, Save the sarcasm. You've even less talent for humour than you have for your job. Caption for panel three. And after the archer relates the vigilante's tale... You see an angry-looking arrow saying, Well, say something. I will. Take your bleeding heart and get out. That factory brings in thousands in taxes. Yeah, while it's ruining the air and water. So what? We need the money. That conservation stuff is a lot of bunk. Man, you are stupid. Look, in some cities the air is so foul that breathing is the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes. And cigarettes are hazardous to health. Final panel of page 17 is a nice dynamic shot of Green Arrow, very much in the dynamic Neil Adams style, as he says. There's poison in the milk baby's drink. Lake Erie's so polluted there's virtually no marine life left. Sea animals are dying in hordes. The first panel of page 18, Green Arrow and Crass have got to their feet. Green Arrow is still saying... Mister, the earth is in trouble. Experts say we're killing this world, strangling it with waste. I won't listen to your babbling, guards. You can see a couple of security men coming in in the back of the room. Remove this weepy loudmouth. Toss him in jail and throw away the key. And then the two security guards approach Green Arrow. Panel two. The first one says, We've got to do it, Green Arrow. Sorry. And the second one says, We're only obeying orders. And a very angry Green Arrow says, Seems I've heard that cop out before. Tremendous. Slow dissolve. Caption for panel three. Meanwhile, Green Arrow's companions have finished a series of purchases at a local western goods shop. This is a great panel. This is definitely going on the socials. Oh, it's glorious. See Black Canary, Batman and the Atom walking behind Greg Sanders. He's now outfitted again as Vigilante in brown boots and blue jeans and a gun belt. We can see that in the, his holsters he's attached the weird irons that he picked up earlier on. He's got a tight-fitting blue shirt. He's his red scarf mask on and a big white hat. Black Canary's looking at him very dizzily as she says, You're very handsome in costume, Vigilante. Greg replies, i got to admit it feels good to be wearing western duds again. It's a privilege to be travelling in your company, a smiling Batman says. We're glad to have you. And in the next panel, we see Vigilante and Black Canary zooming off on Black Canary's motorbike. Vigilante's the passenger. This is great, more Black Canary motorbike action. Yay. Actually, there's going to be quite a lot of Black Canary motorbike action for the next few weeks. <laughs> Vigilante looks back at Batman and the Atom as they zoom off and he's saying, Let's hightail it for that nest of skunks. And Batman waves them off and says, We'll meet you there. 
And looking at Batman in this panel, this is still Silver Age TV show, Carmine-influenced Batman. Yes, definitely. Neil Adams' Batman hasn't really appeared mm. in Justice League yet. The years, as I say, are still quite short. It would be interesting to note when, how Batman evolves over the next yeah. few JLA issues that we do. Mm-hmm. We're now at the top of page 19, the caption for the first panel. At that instant, many light years distant... We see Superman and Green Lantern approaching a distant planet. Swoops is saying, There's our destination, the fifth planet of the sun, Sirius. Green Lantern says, I recall it now. The inhabitants call their world Monsan. It's somewhat similar to Earth. Carbon-based life, considerable vegetation. The next panel, they're flying down to the surface. Green Lantern proclaims, Great Guardians, I can't believe... The atmosphere is almost pure carbon monoxide. Bear traces of oxygen and hydrogen left. The next panel, they're on the surface of the planet. Green Lantern, well, he's fingering something, and he says, The soil, like ashes. I can't see any plants or animals, only total devastation. What could have caused this, this disaster? A whole world changed to a gigantic trash can. You said it was populated. Maybe a fewer left. And we see them looking over a dark, empty horizon. Gosh. The final panel of page 19 is captioned thus. As Green Lantern and Superman begin their grim search, their co-heroes arrive at the mysterious factory. Yep, we see Black Canary, Vigilante, Atom and Batman. I wonder how Batman and the Atom made their way there. Did they use the Batmobile? Probably. Standing looking at the factory through a chain-link fence, the chain-link fence has a sign on it saying, Notice, all employees excused from work until further notice. The management. Vigilante reads the sign and says, Here's their closed. Send everyone home. The Atom, looking behind them, says, Not everyone, cowboy. We've got company. And sure enough, as we arrive at the top of page 20, some familiar-looking, brown hat and brown overcoat-wearing figures rush towards them. Vigilante says, A passel of gunsels like those that tried to bushwhack me. And Batman says, Hit him hard, then get clear. And well, the next few panels, our heroes fight. The brown outfitted bad guys. We see um, Batman doing some punching, the atom shrinking and kicking, Canary using some judo, and Vigilante using his lasso to bash a couple of bad guys together. Panel 3, page 21, we see that Vigilante is drawing out some of the, the strange weapons that he picked up from the bad guys earlier on. And as he does this, he says, Figured they'd get round to gunplay. We can see that a couple of bad guys have pulled guns on him themselves. I'm some handy at that too. And I'll give them back their own medicine. And panel 4, with a zzz and a zat, he fires the fancy guns that he's got at the two bad guys are coming towards them. They drop their weapons as Vigilante says, I'd rather use a couple of Colts. Still, these squirt shooters do rad enough. And the final panel for page 21 is captioned, Valiantly, the Justice Leaguers battle, unaware that the fight is being observed from a control room nearby. This is a great panel. This reminds me of all sorts of things. It could be from Doctor Who, actually. Proper old school, mm. classic Doctor Who. When we see Vigilante on a screen and a gloved hand operating some equipment in front of him. And the voice belonging to this hand says, The struggle goes badly, old leader. Earthlings have extraordinary skills. And off camera, to the right of the panel, another voice says, Fah! There are no match for us, the Doomsters. Observe, the human thinks to employ our blasters but he is unaware that I have placed remote-controlled slumber pellets within them. And with that, another gloved figure reaches forward and activates a switch with a click on the bank of equipment in front of him. The caption for panel 2 of page 22 says, A radio signal spans space, and suddenly... Yes, Vigilante says, Huh? 
Iron's melting into smoke. And that's what we see. The fancy alien guns he was holding are dissolving into green smoke. However, Batman says... Not smoke. Gas. Yes, it must be some kind of knockout gas because Black Canary has a hand up to her face and she's saying, Can't stay awake. The caption for panel three. Before Batman can reach his utility belt, before the atom can touch his size controls, the valiant group falls, helpless. Yes, shivering, passing out to the ground. In panel four, we are back with the distant aliens who were watching on a screen. And we can see on the screen... Vigilante, Batman, Atom, Black Canary being dragged off by the brown-hatted, brown-overcoat-wearing bad guys. The voice of the alien leader says, Take them to the vats. I am inclined to admire their courage. Ergo, I shall kill them exquisitely. The caption for the final panel of page 22. Dragged within the plant walls, the unconscious quintet is dumped into a steel cable net. Yep, that's what we see. We see the net being hoisted up in the unconscious forms of Batman, Black Canary, and Vigilante clearly visible inside, we're guessing the atom's there, we arrive at page 23. And a gloved hand, hand on hip, watches the, the net being lifted up further and says, A pity they are not awake to appreciate the splendour of their demise, but we should delay no longer. Proceed. And the caption for the final panel of JLA issue 78 says, Slowly, Creaking machinery lowers the net toward a vat of bubbling, noxious death. And we see the net being lowered towards a massive cauldron that's bubbling with yellowy-green liquid. And a caption says, This, this is not, is not the, the end. end. Oh, oh no. no. And another caption says, Who are the doomsters and what is their terrible scheme? A climax that will startle, surprise, and stun waits in the next greatest issue of the Justice League of America. Tune in tomorrow, same bat time, <laughs> same bat channel. Very exciting. That is the most Batman TV series cliffhanger we've had out of the yes. entire show so far. It was brilliant, wasn't it? It's really, I mean, yeah. I love the, mm -hmm. the, the absolute jeopardy of it. They're all unconscious, yeah. they've been gassed, mm -hmm. they've been lowered into a vat of acid fantastic how the heck stuff. are they going to get out of that listeners thankfully you won't have to wait too long so pc mm. what's your thoughts on part one how little has changed in life <laughs> i know it's it's shocking it's, it's going know. to be a running theme in this episode because we'll talk about it again in part two mm -hmm. it's so weird over 50 years later and nothing's the same changed issues are, yeah the same issues are present because obviously, as we record, as we record this in the last couple of days mm -hmm. in Britain, you know they've recorded the warmest days on record. You know, mm. forty point mm -hmm. two degrees at Heathrow Airport or something like that. Yeah, um, we're not quite as warm as that up in Glasgow, but certainly you know warmer than the usual. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. My my first memory of reading about sort of green concerns was an issue of the Defenders that featured the Guardians of the Galaxy. All right, okay. I think it's Vance Astro talks mm -hmm. about it's the dangers. Of aerosols and all that sort of things. There's a, oh, I remember right, okay. a line. Yeah, huh. I remember mm -hmm. there's a line about a generation that favoured nice smelling armpits over anything else, and there's shots of people having to wear clothes that cover their entire every aspect of the, you know every part yeah. of the skin. You know, it's really quite effective. And it sounds like Steve Gerber issue to me. Yeah, I mean that's run about issue twenty seven, twenty eight, twenty nine of of the Defenders. So you know, yeah, it could be. Yeah, I mean that's that's going to be mid seventies, I think, by that point. And as we know that there was a a Doctor Who story in nineteen seventy three called The Green Death that talked about mm. pollution and all and it, mm -hmm. it's fascinating really to think that and scary and depressing to think that nothing really has changed <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know our climate is changing around us for all of us who try and encourage good habits there's a lot of other people that, that don't yeah 
it's bad times, and I do not do not envy the next generation that are going to grow up. But anyway, anyway, <laughs> wasn't it nice to see the vigilante back in action? Certainly was. It was uh, tons of fun. This is this is weird because this is probably ninety ninety nine percent probably the debut of the Earth One vigilante. Yeah, as far as stories go, I think it has to be. I mean. We know that Black Canary recently arrived on Earth One, and this is the Green mm-hmm. Lantern and Atom of Earth One. So we know all that. Mm-hmm. This is, on most occasions so far, when a, a Golden Age DC character has been revived, they've been on Earth Two. Yeah, you know, every t- every member of the Justice Society that we've seen so far has obviously mm-hmm. been been on Earth Two. In our next episode, things are going to get a little bit more complicated in that arena, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Mm-hmm. Without a shadow of a doubt, this is the debut of the Earth One Vigilante. Now, I don't know if this is saying that every single story that the Golden Age Vigilante had yeah. took place on Earth 1. And by mm-hmm. extension, everything involving the Seven Swords of Victory took place on Earth 1. If we take it on lip service, on surface value, uh-huh. that's kind of what seems to be happening. At this moment, that is what this story implies. Yes. Obviously, with benefit of hindsight, we know that's not the case. Yeah. Slight spoiler, we know that one future JLA-JSA team-up involves the Seven Swords of Victory. Quite a famous one, three-part story, run about issue 100. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until we did the prep for this podcast that I really realised, because I knew about issue 78, obviously, but I think I realised just quite how big the gap was between these stories reintroducing uh-huh. Vigilante and, J- and JLA, where with the Seven Soldiers being reintroduced in JLA. And obviously, when we mm-hmm. get to the Seven Soldiers, we're going to talk about this issue, this issue a little further. Oh, yes, without a doubt. What we have to really sort of go with at the moment is because we've had stories with Green Arrow and Speedy, mm-hmm. we've seen Green Arrow recently change his gear. Yeah. Because we did a World's Finest story featuring another Crimson Avenger who made reference to an old lawman that had used the name. Yep. And when here's Vigilante turning up, it's probably mm-hmm. safe to assume at this moment that the Seven Soldiers of Victory are all from Earth One. But then. You've got the conundrum with Green Arrow, yes. Green Arrow being a member of the Seven Soldiers, would he have made more of a fuss? Would mm-hmm. he not have recognised the Watchmen immediately? He would have said, my old colleague, Vigilante. That would have changed things entirely. Yeah. That would have been fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there is a moment when Vigilante and Green Arrow have a slight sort of conversation when Oliver says, you know more an ordinary Watchman than I'm a hairdresser. Who are you anyway? So he obviously doesn't recognise him. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that maybe at this point gives a little bit of a lie, or maybe he's aged a little bit. Maybe it's mm-hmm. been a while since, you know, but it's interesting. Maybe Vidge didn't recognise Xenaro with the goatee. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. <laughs> I think, we, and this is the thing, you know, we have to, we're using the comics as we find them as our primary source mm-hmm. of all speculations. Mm-hmm. I think this is a difficult one to reconcile at this point. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so let's not spend too much more time on it. No. Let, no. Let's just see how things pan out in the grand scheme. But this, to sum it Absolutely, up, yes. either the Seven Soldiers of Victory, including Green Arrow, Crimson Avenger, Vigilante, and everyone else were all on Earth 1. Mm. Or they were somewhere else, and there's a Vigilante on Earth 1 who does not have any history with Green Arrow. So we'll see what happens. We'll yes. see what happens. Mm-hmm. Very interesting story. Mm-hmm. Right with Denny O'Neill. I love the artwork. It's very dynamic. I mean, the shot of Vigilante first back in costume is tremendous. Mm-hmm. It looks great. Everyone's drawn really well. The scenes of Black Canary being introduced to the public, although we glossed over them, they're quite charming. Yes, it's a really nice debut for her. Uh-huh. Superman describes her as the League's newest and prettiest member. <laughs> the <laughs> lovely Black Canary before she then has to start fighting. Mm-hmm. It's good that they're still integrating Black Canary into proceedings at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not just that she's there and it's you know it's not addressed again. No use of her Canary crying in this issue, though. That's, that's uh, true. That's interesting. I'll have to wait mm-hmm. for that. So... To keep the episode 
on schedule and as brief as possible. Shall we move on to the, the reader reaction from the time? Let's do this. We'll jump forward to the JLA mailroom from issue 81. And the first mm. letter goes like this. Dear Editor, the difference between maintaining a reader's interest throughout a story and presenting to him a genuine mystery that really keeps him wondering is the difference between a good story and a great story. In his past JLA stories, Denny O'Neill's own brand of characterisation, coupled with his flair for believable dialogue, gave evidence that Denny had the potential to capture an element of the Gardner Fox JLA tales that's been sorely missed for low these many issues, colon, interplay. Denny's plots were good, his dialogue was good, his characters were good, but every so often he'd go off the deep end and get corny. Any unity among the characters that O'Neill would start to develop within the story would be destroyed the minute the camp came on. And albeit Fox's characterisations were never really concise ones, the JLAers did evoke team spirit in one another. Suddenly, Denny O'Neill has conquered the final steps. He has ascended to the final plateau of greatness by rekindling the fire of yesteryear's glory with the coming of the Doomsters. He has written a story which makes constant use of that vital element interplay and grabs the reader's attention and holds it by using a real puzzle the Doomsters' identity and motives. Mm-hmm. I don't believe any JLA tale within the past five years, and certainly not any recent story, comes even close to the coming of the Doomsters in sheer originality of plot. Pollution. Whoever could have thought of pollution as a menace for superheroes? Furthermore, I'll bet a lesser mind would have stopped with your average, everyday, walkie-round type of pollution, but not O'Neill. Pollution for pollution's sake, even. Pollution as a criminal plot, even. From outer space, yet... The most incredible thing about JLA 78, really, was how many reader requests in the letter call were fulfilled in that very same issue. One reader gripes about my pet peeve, O'Neill's tongue-in-cheekism. And in 78, the straightest O'Neill yarn yet. Another fan suggests Gil Kane for a JLA cover, and presto, a Kane cover, a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. And as I've already mentioned, the very necessary element of unity of purpose for the leaguers, characterised in the firm fashion the JLA has needed for ten years. Yet the list of specials goes on, an extra treat and something that no one in the letter call suggested, but which I'm sure they're delighted to see, a superhero revival. And what better figure to pick on than Vigilante? I still haven't the faintest idea who the Doomsters could possibly be, or why they've set out to pollute the planet, and frankly, I wouldn't have it any other way. The suspense was maintained nicely to build into a tight little cliffhanger ending, and I love cliffhanger endings. I'm only too eager to buy number 79 as soon as it comes out, the new JLA Sanctuary is marvellous. The use of the JLA this issue was superlative. Action evenly distributed among members, good selection of members, and I'm beginning to think I'm boring you to death with compliments. And that is from one Martin Pascoe, Clifton, New Jersey. Very verbose. Thanks for that, Martin. <laughs> Indeed, yes. And again, I'm looking forward to covering some of his stories when we get to them in the podcast. Yes, very much so. And the editorial response to Pesky Pascoe's uh, comments <laughs> are... Bored to death by compliments? Hardly. Especially when the thankful thrusts come from that hard-to-please sage of Clifton, New Jersey. Yes, sir. What a way to go, says the editor. Awesome. Indeed. The next letter says, Dear Editor, Author Denny O'Neill has put the Justice League into a status of change. But about the only aspect of the change that Mr O'Neill seems certain about is that the series will be different from the format that Gardner Fox adhered to during the early days of the League. Change of format is not a bad idea, but unfortunately Mr O'Neill has begun the transition awkwardly. It's almost as if each story has a balanced scale of plus and minus points, each weighing out evenly by the conclusion. The coming of the Doomsters continues the transition which seems to have had its origin during the last GLA team-up with the JSA. 
The addition of the Vigilante to the group, not to mention the recent change in Green Arrow and the emerging of one, the Black Canary, have given a breath of fresh air to the GLA series. The emphasis has begun to shift toward the human condition in each segment now, whereas before, Gardner Fox concentrated on the scientific, impersonal areas. Mm. And this is where the awkwardness sets in. The concentration of plot around the human condition is needed, yet, in these recent issues, O'Neill seems to give this area token acknowledgement, as if he is uncertain about what temperaments, what emotions he should give the Justice League. Art-wise... Dylan and Giella are far better illustrators of myriad superheroes than the earlier Sikowski Sachs team. Dylan and Giella tend to give classical appearance to the heroes, give each character a measure of difference from his partner. Plot-wise, the pollution theme would have been fine, except that pawning off this inherent problem on arch-villains as the Doomsters seems as much of a cop-out as the one decent line Mr O'Neill leaves in his script. That one scene, despite the impassioned speeches of Green Arrow, has a ring of impact at its conclusion. The policeman ushering Green Arrow out of the politician's office murmuring, We're only obeying orders. And G.A.'s reply, Seems I've heard that cop out before. We're so effective that the weaker spots of the story are balanced out once again. With a few more lines like that, the smoother handling of the human condition and continued emphasis on that particular area with a character like the Vigilante, and with the daring to try something different, the Justice League has a chance of becoming a superior script. And that's from future comic pro Donald F. McGregor. Yes, I'm sure we've had other correspondence from him. He makes a good point there about all these, seems I've heard that cop out before, that's a good line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely have. Editorial response, you were unfair to pin that pollution cop-out on Denny O'Neill without waiting to read the conclusion in issue 79. Yes, we'll, we'll say no more at that point because we're about to do issue 79. The next letter is from Alan Brennert, another future comics pro. He's just largely positive about the issue and he also talks about mm-hmm. the, the old story that gets reprinted as well. But we're not not—we're trying to squeeze as much as we can into this episode. <laughs> we're not going to do every letter from both issues, just no. the, the, the particularly relevant ones. So mm-hmm. the next letter goes like this. Dear Editor, I think I must have a recurrence of a sense of wonder because I enjoyed Justice League 78 quite heartily and I can't see why I should have. It probably started if I guessed wrong about what was really happening at the bottom of the second page. It said, Never has Green Arrow been more mistaken. And the always conclusion, which I immediately jumped to, was that the fellow he had rescued was really the bad guy instead of the two men who were after him. But instead of the idea I got of what was going to happen, one of Green Arrow's shafts went out and set a river on fire. Wham! That's enough to bring back anybody's sense of wonder if it catches them unawares. Then the reader is introduced to the new JLA headquarters, a nifty satellite question. What sort of gravity does the thing have? If it works like most fictional satellites, the gravity is really the centrifugal force of the satellite's rotation. But the way the thing is shaped and the fact that the meeting room is so near the centre of the satellite seems to say no to that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. We'll see what happens. I think there must be some Thanagarian science involved, surely. The entire thing's Thanagarian. It only works uh, that, that Hawkman designed it and built it. Yeah, I've often wondered. Anyway, letter continues. And the Vigilante. Fantastic. It's been a long, long time since I've seen a superhero use a gun, and the novelty alone would have won me over. But he is a true hero, the kind you really expect to spend his time fighting crime just because it's there. The story, even, was very good. Denny O'Neill was apparently writing seriously and sincerely, since he is a pretty fair writer when he wants to be, but writing honestly, he could hardly help but produce a good story. The art did not detract from the fine script either. It was totally a very good issue, in fact. Thanks. And that's from Stephen Carlberg, Shreveport, LA. That's interesting, because let's be honest, the whole pollution theme feels mm-hmm. like the sort of topic that Denny might have covered in Green Lantern, Green Arrow, doesn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's stories about drug abuse, as we know, and overpopulation. Mm-hmm. He's definitely on the case, I think, is Denny. He's definitely got his finger on the pulse of the issues that are affecting society yep. and all that. And thank goodness he did. Yeah, I think he's smelling the changes that happened at Marvel and uh, thinking, I can do this. And yeah. I, I see your changes and I raise them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I think, to be honest, reading this sort of story, it gives lie to the commonly held thought that Marvel were completely leaving DC behind at this point. You know, it's. Yeah, yeah. There's okay. some real depth to what DC are doing amongst all the, mm-hmm. the family friendly fluff. So, with no more ado, we shall move on to Justice League of America, issue 79. And listeners, this one was published on the 21st of January, 1970. We are into a new decade at last. Gosh. John Pertwee's third Doctor will have made his debut in BBC One a couple of weeks earlier. The Beatles are on the verge. Yep, it's all happening. Pizzi, do you want to tell everyone about the cover to issue 79 of JLA? Yes, again, we have a roll called in the side. It is... Superman. Batman. The Flash. Black Canary. Green Lantern. Atom. Green Arrow. So there we are. And again, we have got a horrible background of pollution and wasteland mm-hmm. all over a cityscape, it looks like. And we have the Justice League all either clutching their throats or unconscious. Hawkman seems to be unconscious. Green Arrow is holding an unconscious Black Canary in the background. Flash is choking. Green Lantern looks like he's in the middle of singing his number one hit, quite frankly, <laughs> at the top of his voice. <laughs> <laughs> Green Lantern thinks, oh, what a beautiful morning. <laughs> and Batman can't stand it, so he's... No, he's having none of it. Batman looks so he's checking on Hawkman. That's quite quite nice. He does, yeah. And this pollution is even affecting Superman, who's crawling at the front and shouting at the reader, Stop the deadly pollution, or no one on Earth will be left alive. And standing over all this is a green-suited figure with purple boots, purple cape, and a purple hood. And it seems he's got two futuristic-looking blasters covering his hands. Gosh. He looks very much like the Prowler, the Marvel villain. Yes, I was about to say that, Logopolis. Yeah, and bellowing out of his blaster are the, are the clouds of pollution that are choking the planet. It's mm. a little bit more symbolic yes. than some JLA covers. I think this might be our 20th Neil Adams cover. <laughs> <laughs> Before we do the next issue of Brave and Bold, we're going to go back and properly check. Because I think I got it wrong <laughs> with, with one of the Lois Lane episodes recently. don't think Neil drew one of the, one of those covers that we talked about. Okay. But I will, I will properly check... Yes, and it's interesting, this cover, like the next few GLA covers, it's it's almost boxed off. We have the Just League logo at the top yeah. on white, the roll call on white, and the cover art is actually a bit, it's always boxed off. And a little clearer, it's also a little smaller. It's it's interesting, I mean, Marvel went through a phase of boxing off the covers as well, I seem mm-hmm. to remember, yeah. possibly around this time, maybe a little later, but we're into the 70s. Gosh, gosh. We've made it. Mid-episodes. <laughs> what? I know. We have made it to the 1970s. Right. There you go. Without any further ado, we shall get back into the swing of things with issue 79. Now, the comic begins with a one-page recap of the previous issue, showing Superman and Green Lantern out in space, Green Arrow being escorted out of Star City Hall by the guards or policemen, according to the letters page, and the Justice League and Vigilante being lowered into the vat of foul nastiness. On page two, we see Green Arrow leaving the hall. Next again, it's a bit of a recap of what we saw in the previous issue. Mm-hmm. And he decides to catch up with the other superheroes at the factory. Green Arrow reaches the factory and spots Vigilante's lasso lying on the ground. And we pick up with panel five, the final panel of page two, as Green Arrow picks up the lasso and looks at the fence and thinks. Which means the Vigilante was here. He wouldn't have left this rope unless he had to. 
I smell trouble from inside. That fence is high and probably charged with electricity. I've just the arrow to handle it. Unfortunately, that particular shaft is at home. Well, that's a lot of use. In the first panel of page three, Green Arrow thinks... There's an arrow for every occasion, only I'd need a quiver as big as a building to carry them all. So, I'll add lib, a flare to short out the fence and burn through the steel mesh. And we see with a zzzz that he's activated another flare arrow, presumably the same one that used in the last issue, and the fence is being distorted in front of him. Panel two, page three, we see Green Arrow. It's a great shot, actually, through the hole in the fence mm-hmm. that Green Arrow has created. We see him running towards the factory as he thinks, Made it. Now to follow my nose to trouble. And, astonishingly, in panel three, he's found everyone else almost immediately. The caption for it says, With dear speed, the Emerald Archer races to a shed where... Yes, we see the, oh my goodness, the net is actually touching the the liquid in the vat. That's terrifying. Green Arrow looks up and thinks, Good Lord, they're unconscious and in a few seconds they'll be dead. Unless I can jam that hoist machinery. Yes, he draws an arrow, puts it to his bow in the next panel, firing upwards. Caption for the final panel of page three. Swift and straight, the shaft flies upward, honouringly to its target. Jaws of gears close in it like mute beasts and grind to a stop. Yes, there's a massive tashak sound effect as Ollie's projectile interferes with the equipment and renders it useless. In the first panel of page four, we see some of the familiar hat and overcoat wearing bad guys on a gantry overlooking everything that's going on. One of them says, Leader Chor, another intruder. He halted the doom device. And a voice from off-camera says, Annihilate him! So the two hat and overcoat-wearing figures fire their weird alien guns with a zit down at Green Arrow, who's down on the ground and he thinks, Did I spare their lives at the cost of my own? Only one life-saving chance. Revive the Justice Leaguers. Once more I'll have to improvise. My incendiary gimmick is half-explosive and half-pure oxygen to help with the flames. I'll kill the exploding part and hope a sudden rush of oxygen will serve as a reviver. Yes, we see Ollie fiddling with one of his arrows and firing it. There's a swoosh sound effect as it bursts above the the net that everyone else is contained in. A very messy opening few panels. I don't mind saying, listeners, I'm really (laughs) confused as to what's actually going on here. Anyway, panel four is captioned. Green Arrow's desperate ploy succeeds. Sweet air replaces the noxious gas in four pairs of tortured lungs and... We're inside the net with Batman the Atom Vigilante and Black Canary coming to. Batman says, Huh? What's this? Black Canary says, Where are we? And off camera, Green Arrow says, Shield your eyes, Justice League. And very helpfully, he thinks, in the final panel of page four. And now, a dazzle arrow to buy his time. And he fires this dazzle arrow up towards the, the gantry where the, the hatted overcoat wearing bad guys are. There's a massive burst of light, very, very effective panel. And the bad guy says, I cannot see! The first panel of page five. (laughs) The heroes have escaped from the net. Batman, Black Canary and Vigilante are climbing up a pulley towards the gantry that the bad guys are standing on. The Atom, however, is making his own way. And he cries, The Atom is Adam! Batman shakes his head and says, A pun worthy of Robin! Panel 2. With thuds and baffs, the Atom and Batman get stuck in with their fists, as the Atom says in reply to Batman, All us subsized superheroes are witty. I wonder why we feel a need to wisecrack as we fight. Panel 3. We see Canary kicking one of the fancy alien guns out of the hands of one of the baddies, as she says, Perhaps because our tasks are usually too grim, 
Unless we can make jokes out of them, we'd live horribly depressed. Final panel of page five. With a sock, Vigilante punches one of the bad guys in the stomach as he says, Right smart for a lady, Miss Canary. Life is a heap more livable with a smear and a humour. And off panel, one of the bad guys says, They are too much for us. To the tower, doomsters flee. Gosh. First panel of page six is captioned, Abruptly, the extraterrestrials wheel and stream across the catwalk into a corner chamber. Interesting panel. That's very useful and it gives us a good idea of the layout of the place. We can see the remnants of the net over the vat and a sort of gantry catwalk that the heroes and villains are standing on. The bad guys all rush towards a doorway in the right hand of the panel as the heroes start to move after them. Vigilante says, I sure don't get it. That ain't the way out. And in panel two, as the heroes reach the now closed door, Vigilante says, Lock themselves in right tight, Batman says. I don't recall any windows in this side of the shed. They're trapped. And a caption rounds out this page saying, Agree with Batman, gentle reader. If you do, you're going to be unpleasantly surprised after the following one-page pause. The rest of this page is taken up with a house ad for issue 117 of Jerry Lewis. Mm. There'll be more on that another time. So, we arrive at the top of page 7, the caption for the first panel. Suddenly, the floor and walls begin to shake violently, knocking the costumed crew off their feet. Yeah, it's a great panel. It looks at the disco dancing, quite frankly. And then, (laughs) the caption for panel 2 says, A roar, a rending of metal and wood, and flame gouts from the bottom of the shed as it rockets skyward. Yeah, there's a massive roar sound effect. as Basically, the shed flies up into the sky. Good grief. That's terrifying. The heroes, thankfully, managed to get out. They're standing on the ground, looking at the, the crater that's left behind. Vigilante says, Crooks have gotten a heap more fancy since my day. Batman says, I was wrong. They weren't trapped. The atom on his shoulder says, Yeah, but nobody's going to blame you for making that mistake. And Black Canary concludes, It was a disguised rocket ship, wasn't it? And final panel of page seven shows Green Arrow rejoining his colleagues as he says, That it was, Bird Lady. Those guys made us look like a bunch of stumble-footed amateurs. Vigilante responds, I'd feel lots better if I knew who or what we're up against. And the atom still atop Batman's shoulder says, (laughs) What says the world's finest detective? And Batman rubbing his chin, looking heavily Adam West again. This is tremendous, Mm. especially actually in the next panel. It's shocking. (laughs) Batman says, Investigative technique demands we review the facts at this point. He continues then in the first panel of page eight. Fact one. The operators of this factory have been systematically poisoning the air and water. Fact two. They use superweapons and robots unknown on Earth. Fact three. The vigilante found a star map on the premises, all of which adds up to... A black Canary comes to the conclusion... Aliens! Gosh, well, they're all looking up at the sky in panel two, page eight, as Green Arrow <laughs> says... Sure, but we still haven't answered the big question. Why? Vigilante responds... Might be Superman and that lantern warrior corralling the truth. So... Story continues out in space. We see Superman and Green Lantern on the planet Monsan and they meet a survivor of the environmental collapse. He tells the heroes that one of Monsan's leaders schemes to make other planets like Monsan. There's a flashback montage that describes the industrial pollution, the scientists who warned the government of the danger, people dying in large numbers, all to no avail. We resume reading with page 9, panel 5. The survivor who Green Lantern and Superman have found concludes his flashback with his narration saying, Only leader Choke, if 
found a solution. His technicians learned that certain Monsanians possessed a gene which could alter their body chemistry. Choke devised a radiation bath to accomplish this alteration and subjected his followers to the experiments. And what we see in this panel is a row of people. We should describe the aliens, actually, before we go a little further. They look a little bit like Kanja Row with the kind of slightly exaggerated features. There's kind of dark rings around their eyes, exaggerating those large mouths. And we can see, basically, it's rows of people with headsets on that cover up their eyes but leave their mouths and noses free. They're connected to tubes that feed up into the ceiling. It looks very nasty. The survivor's narration continues in the first panel of page 10. It succeeded. These citizens could breathe air fouled with fumes, thrive on water thick with poison. In short, they were perfectly adapted for living in a polluted world. And I suddenly realised where the makers of the the air zone solution (laughs) got their ideas from. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We see in panel one of page 10 the inhabitants of Monsan taking off the helmets that we described in the previous panel and their faces they've basically been sort of tinted more purple than the pink that they yeah. were seriously mm-hmm. they look slightly more grotesque slightly worn out mm. it's very odd they've been changed anyway mutation yes panel two we see superman cradling the survivor as he says but more than their bodies changed. Their minds became as twisted and hideous as their forms. They were monsters. Doomsters. Superman says, You said you wanted to warn us. And as poor soul continues in panel three. Yes. Choke is not satisfied. He is voyaging to other star systems, seeking planets like Monsan to make them fit places for him and his kind. He plans to ruin, then to colonize. I struggled to survive, hoping somehow to warn someone. Now it is done. Final panel, page 10. Superman is downcast, holding the survivor's limp hand, and he says, He's dead, Green Lantern. An angry howl says, just like everything else, a fine, brave man in a good green world killed. Green Lantern takes to the air in the first panel of page 11. He flies off Superman following him, saying, Where are you going? Off this abomination, there's one thing I can still do for Monsan, and that's to help the universe forget it ever existed, to blast it into atoms. And he fires a green power beam from his ring, which Superman intercepts, blocks it, saying, No, let Monsan be what the old man wanted it to be. A monument to mortal ignorance and a warning. Gosh, heavy stuff. So, back in our solar system, Batman radios Hawkman, who's up on the JLA satellite, to warn him of the missile building, which we saw take off earlier in the story. As Hawkman prepares to use his gravity beam to stop the building, this is something that he has in his own Thanagarian vessel, the skyscraper explodes, revealing inside a large double-pronged spaceship, which turns to fire on Hawkman's ship. Hawkman abandons his vessel just in time, but he is stunned by the explosion and left drifting in space. We return to the story. First panel of page 15 is a caption that says, Inside the Doomster spaceship. Yes, we see some of the grotesque purple-faced aliens. There's three of them wearing blue robes, and their hooded and masked leader is at the front of the ship. Now, we can see over this following page that he looks very similar to the guy we saw on the cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's obviously piloting the ship. At the front of the cockpit, he's saying, Crafty and sly, these earthlings. Courageous also. 
We can delay no longer. We must escalate the program. Prepare to drop polluter canisters. And one of his lackeys says, Why have we not done so sooner, Leader Cho? Because I enjoy watching my handiwork. It gives me utmost pleasure to view clouds of soot blighting the land, to observe the rivers and streams succumbing to acidic contamination. However, I must forgo my special joy, lest we lose this valuable colony. It's an interesting shot here because we can see his purple hand. I think it's significant that he's wearing a hood, whereas the rest of the guys aren't. We'll see how that plays Mm -hmm. out. Panel 3 is captioned. With a speed rivaling that of Superman himself, the Doomsters circle the globe, pitching huge canisters into the rivers. Yes, this is very depressing. It's a shot of the double-pronged spaceship, which really looks like a bit of a throwback, to be honest. It's like something from a 50s issue of Mystery in Space. Fireball XL5 or something. Yeah, yeah, or even that, definitely. And we see one, as the caption said, dropping a canister into a very picturesque-looking river. Panel 4's caption then says... Burying them in rich, dark soil. And we see a surprised-looking farmer standing on his tractor as a canister lands on the ground in front of him. The final panel of page 15 is captioned, Slamming the death-laden drums into city pavements. Yep, and a very Gil looking bit of art. It is, isn't it? Yeah, we see another one of the canisters dropping into the pavement and breaking it, and some people running away looking panicked. Captioned for the first panel on page 16. Suddenly, television screens blank, and soap operas are replaced by the masked face of Choke. Commercials give way to his thickly accented voice. Yes, we see a few ladies, obviously. One of them looks a bit like Lois Lane, one looks a bit like Lana Lang. Maybe it is them, we'll never know. And the other one looks like Agatha Harkness. <laughs> yeah! So is this the, our first intercompany crossover? Could be. And we see Choke's Choke, you see pollution, listeners, you mm. see, you see mm. Choke's masked face. He reminds me of, is it the hate monger? Yes, same look. Uh-huh. He's like a cross between the hate monger and the prowler, isn't he? Yeah, without a doubt. We see his face on television then as he's saying, Attention! I, Leader Choke, am not a cruel being. Therefore, I give citizens of Earth one hour to make peace with themselves, after which I shall release total pollution. And we see the shady Jason Crass, who we met in issue 78, sitting with his feet up in his office watching this broadcast, and he says, So what? I'm not afraid of a little smog. Shut up and let's get on with the ball game. We can see that he's drinking a can of root beer. So that's nice. The caption for panel three says, However, the Justice League is not as obtuse as the erstwhile city manager. Hurriedly, they assemble at a certain rendezvous, and... We see Batman and the Atom using one of the transporter tubes to beam up to the satellite. Batman saying, We've got to hold a council of war in our satellite headquarters. Green Lantern and Superman return to our solar system, and they see Hawkman hanging in space, and then take him onto the satellite. So the caption for panel 2 of page 17 says, While Black Canary and Green Lantern work desperately to revive their near-frozen companion, Batman tells of Choke's ultimatum. Yes, there's a lot going on in this panel. Hawkman... Has Hawkman had a single line yet? <laughs> nope, well he has, but only in the summarised bits. <laughs> I've just cut them all out. You have cut me out of this. <laughs> yes. Hawkman is being held in a bit of scientific equipment. There's a sort of harness around his chest, there's a belt around his waist, and there seems to be something blasting a little pink beam at him. Maybe, maybe it's actually Wonder Woman's purple hearing ray. That's me speculating. Could be, yeah. The other heroes are standing surrounding, and we can see Batman, Vigilante, the Atom, who stood in Green Lantern, showed her for a change. 
Arrow, Canary and Superman looking very closely as Hawkman heals. Green Lantern says, Hawkman will be mighty sick for a few weeks, but he should pull through. Atom says, Blasted Lantern, he doesn't have a few weeks, and neither does the rest of humanity. Vigilante then pitches in. I calculate we got only about ten minutes before that stink face pushes his doom button. And Atom says, Not long enough to even locate all the bombs, much less disable them. Green Arrow says, We don't have to find the bombs. Our Iron Scope should be able to pinpoint the Doomster's ship. We see Green Arrow looking over his shoulder, a screen behind him, and there's a little flash of energy on it, and he says, We can stop the menace at its source. The scope shows. But he's caught off by Green Lantern, who says, We see. And he and Superman take flight, and Superman says, And we're on our way. Tiny Capson says, Continued in second page following, We arrive at the top of page 18, and we see the hand of Leader Choke, and a couple of his cowering, purple-faced friends, as Leader Choke says, The grace period is over. I begin our takeover. Gosh, he activates the button. It's probably going to make everything go super manky. The caption for page 18, panel 2 says, But before the alien can act, the bulkheads cave inward beneath the headlong flight of a pair of mighty crusaders. Yes, there's a frash sound effect as Green Lantern and Superman burst through the wall. Green Lantern says, Rip out the control board, Superman. I'll deal with these maniacs a do of my own. And as Superman goes to work and ripping out their equipment, some of the purple-faced bad guys fire their energy guns at with zit-zit sound effects. Nothing happens, of course, because it's Superman. And Green Lantern uses his power ring to take out a couple of the others. The fight continues in the first panel of page 19. Superman punches out a purple alien, saying, That about finishes, GL. And as GL does an uppercut on another bad guy, he says, I'll contact the Guardians of the Universe. I'm sure they can recommend a proper prison planet for Choke and his cohorts. Speaking of Choke, where is he? And Superman looks right at us, the audience, and says, Gone! During the fray, Choke escaped through a cargo hatch and is jetting toward the nearest shelter, the JLA headquarters. Yes, he's got some handy ankle rockets here. They look awesome. Which must be very easy to to steer. He's also got one of the, the weird alien guns that Vigilante had earlier on. And he uses this to blast a hole in the side of the satellite in the final panel of page 19. From inside, a voice says, The shield's been penetrated. Seal off section 8. So it's Batman. In another universe, it might have been Green Arrow Black Canary. You will never know. The first panel of page 20 is captioned. Automatic machinery seals the gaping hole, but not before the Monsanian can slip through. Yes, and we see Leader Choke in his hood and his cape, bearing one of the scary alien weapons towards Vigilante, Green Arrow, Atom, Batman and Black Canary. Choke says, Hold, Earthlings! Be kind to yourselves! Do not move! This is the Justice League's digs. Right and polite for you to come busting in without an invite, says Vigilante, who moves forward in panel two, saying, Might be I can teach you some manners. Choke replies, Fools, think you can outspeed my weapon? Behind Choke, Black Canary makes a move, and she thinks, While his attention's on the Vigilante, he's open for a flank attack. Caption for panel three. The blast misses the Vigilante, but hits a bulkhead plate and glances off. Racking the Westerner into unconsciousness. Yeah, you didn't think that through, Black Canary, did you? With a zit sound effect, we see the energy reflect off the wall, sure enough, and strike Vigilante. Canary thinks, He won't have time for a second shot. I'll avenge Vig. Caption for the final panel. Ugly fate intervenes. A spot of oil from the repair device causes Black Canary to slip. 
Well, that's rubbish. That's what we see. Canary slipping and choke whirling around to spot it. First panel of page 21. We've not had one of these for a while. Big long panel takes up the, the length of the page. Mm-hmm. Choke is pointing his gun at the down canary's head and he says, Should any of the rest of you choose to test me, the cost will be the woman's life. Stand back, or she perishes in a particularly unpleasant fashion. Green Arrow, Atom and Batman look on. Green Arrow says, Looks like he's holding all the aces. Canary has recovered slightly in the next panel. She stands up. Choke waves his weapon at them all and says, Be so good as to step outside. Black Canary says, But but we're in space. Anyone who leaves the station without a suit will suffocate. That's what I have in mind. The next panel, again, this is such an Adam West Batman. It's terrific. It's almost, Mm -hmm. it feels like, for some reason it feels like it's one of the last times we'll see him. Yeah. Close up shot of him as the Atom whispers to him. Pretend to do as he says, Batman. I've got one stunt left. First, though, I have to shrink to microbe size. And with a click, he shrinks down from view. Batman thinks in the next panel, I've got to stall. And then he says, Black Canary, although I've known you only a few months, I've come to regard you highly. Green Arrow then says, I feel stronger than that, lady. I I could have loved you. And the reason the guys are saying this, because it looks as though Choke was holding Canary hostage. He's got his left arm on her left shoulder holding her beside him as he points his gun at the male heroes. Canary looks very thoughtful at what the two guys have just said. I'm going to come back to that, actually. Choke says, Stop blubbering and open the lock. And then in the first panel, page 22, with a zonk, the atom appears from nowhere and punches Choke from underneath, sending his head flying backwards. The atom says, Hold the soap opera, gang. Junior here has decided he doesn't want to be a meanie after all. Canary says, Adam... You're the most beautiful little man I've ever seen. How did you... Atom has taken his rest on Batman's shoulder here and says, Nothing to it, Blondie. I merely shrunk, caught an air current, and when I was in punching range, grew again. Now, Green Arrow is reaching forward towards Choke in this panel, and he says, I want to look at our freaky foe. Choke panics and says, No, no, don't touch my mask. Panel 3. Green Arrow has reached forward and removed the mask. Canary looks horrified. She says, he, he's hideous. And Choke says, I can't stand this chamber. It's full of fresh air. And a Choke scream. And we see him. He's even more mutated than the other aliens that we saw. Large, staring eyes, blue hair, purple face, distorted nostrils. A wide, looks like a toothless mouth, actually. Mm. Stands revealed. He looks kind of familiar. I'm sure I've seen Dick Dillon draw similar <laughs> aliens <laughs> at various points in his comics career. Not a complaint, no, but yeah. But Choke, yes. I suppose the irony is that he can't handle the fresh air. Mm. You turn the page, top of page 23. Later, in Star City, Black Canary and Green Arrow stroll along a bluff overlooking a metropolis... Enjoying a splendid sunset. It is a splendid sunset. There's a nice blend of yellow and orange. As they, they walk along casting long shadows, we see, we see the city behind them. Green Arrow says, I've got to confess, I meant that stuff about loving you. Gosh, woof, Canary says. Please, I like you, admire you, but I'm still full of memories. My late husband... She looks very pained and awkward on the final panel now, as she almost addresses the camera and says, Perhaps in a while I'll be able to discover myself. 
For now, let's be grateful that we saved your earth and Green Arrow. Looking out over a landscape of chimneys belching smoke into the air, says... Did we? I wonder. And a small caption says... The The end. end. Well. Wow. It's good stuff, isn't it? It's Yeah, it's powerful, powerful the time, and it still rings true today, sadly, as we said. I'm a bit kind of disappointed that for the return of the vigilante, it gets knocked out in the final act and uh, it doesn't even take part in the proceedings. Yes. (laughs) I'm finding myself wondering, why did Denny bother? Yeah. Because it's not like the vigilante had any particular skills or abilities or characteristics that were really put to use at the climax or... Yeah, that would have been great. Is it just because because they wanted a couple of panels on using the alien guns and they didn't really think that anyone else would have used them? Is that maybe why? May well be, may well be. One thing I want to talk about, because we're not really going to cover the jail issues that deal with it, there is a hint here of something that develops over a couple of issues, a bit of a love mm-hmm. triangle between Batman, Green Arrow and Black Canary. Mm-hmm. We'll maybe say a bit more about that when we do Brave and Bold issue 91 in a few episodes' time, but... And one of the issues of the GLA that falls on from this, mm-hmm. in a sort of heated moment when she's feeling very unstable and confused, Black Canadian Batman share a kiss. And this leads to a bit of back and forth between her and Green Arrow and, Gosh. and Batman. We'll see if that gets touched on in B&B 91, but as we know, ultimately, Green Arrow and Black Canary do end up together. But it's nice to see this actually being pointedly laid out by Denny O'Neill mm-hmm. already at this point. Here is, I'm liking the crossover yeah. between... Mm-hmm. What Denny's doing with Ollie and Brave and Bold and JLA and, and Green Lantern, Green Arrow. It's very interesting. If Frank Miller had written that uh, Batman Black Canary kiss, he would just had it in the caption for Batman saying, I could tell from her kiss she was a smoker. <laughs> Paraphrase from All-Star Batman and Robin there. <laughs> All-Star Batman and Robin, yes, I, remem- I remember. Dreadful. Oh. oh, that's probably one of the worst comics ever created. Frank, yeah. <laughs> It's weird when you read some of Frank Miller's Daredevil stuff and then mm-hmm. and you go, wow, and then you read something like that and it's just... Oof. It's weird when you read All-Star Superman and then All-Star Batman and Robin and see how poles apart they are. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, well. There's not really much more to say about this one. I like the, you know, obviously we summarised some of the details, mm-hmm. but it's very mm-hmm. interesting. The scenes of Superman and Green Lantern with a survivor when he basically outlines everything that happened. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the pollution motif, which is obviously is very strong and is, is given the same emphasis at the end like it had done yeah. throughout the story. That's the main takeaway. It's like, you know, it's mm-hmm. Denny's flagging us up and wants the audience to consider it. And obviously, maybe some of the audience did, but a lot, not a lot of them haven't <laughs> or didn't. It's There's not really too much. I don't really have too much more to add. Rather than what we've said about Vigilante and the development mm-hmm. of the GABC situation, I think it's, uh-huh. it's quite a... A satisfying conclusion at the fresh air. Maybe that's why Choke yeah. wore the mask. Maybe that was yes. his respiratory system. Had to be. It's Had interesting be. that he, he was sort of taken out by the fresh air. That was, mm-hmm. I suppose, the irony of it all. Yeah. I've got a couple of wee points I'd like to bring up as well, just minor things. Mm-hmm. The reference to Sherlock Holmes was interesting. This kind of implies that there might be an actual Earth-1 Sherlock Holmes. Now, just to let you know, folks, there is who mm. turns up later on in DC Continuity. I don't know if we'll be covering any of those stories we might. Are you thinking, there's a, there's the Sherlock Holmes one-and-done comic with Walt Simonson cover, and then he pops up in, spoilers, is it issue 572 Detective Comics? Yep, and he's also an issue of The Joker as well. Ah, no, you're right, I remember that. Oh, that's a thought. We might pencil that in for future, just for a fun diversion. That's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. I had a full set of The Joker listeners at one point. Well, a nearly full set. 
but it got purged. The only one I kept was the DC comic celebrates the bicentennial. I didn't even keep the one of the creeper. Can you believe this? <gasps> didn't keep the Gosh. one with Green Arrow and Black Canary. Can you believe this? Gosh, I know. Oh, I hate myself sometimes. But you know, it was I probably, the thing is, I probably mm-hmm. if I sold them now, I'd probably get more money for them than when I sold them when I did. Well, yeah, let's have a think about doing that because there's a, mm-hmm. there's another previously published crime fighter that wasn't published with DC Comics that, that has quite a long legacy that we're thinking about yeah. covering. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's have a think about Sherlock Holmes. Listeners, would you like us to do the issue of the Joker featuring Sherlock Holmes? Let us know. Let us know, yes. Another thing I want to raise is, literally raise, when the building flew off into the sky, did you have the same two thoughts that I had? Tell me your thoughts and I'll tell you. Okay, there's the comic one and then there's the British TV one. Right. What was the comic one? The Baxter Building? Baxter Building. I think it was an FF yes. number five, <laughs> I think it was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I don't know if it's the first or the second Doctor Doom appearance, but certainly he basically blasts the Baxter Building off into space. Yeah. And that's also harkened back to in a, in a John Byrne Fantastic Four issue where Doom does the same thing again. I think that's the, the one that I probably thought of, the John Byrne one, because I haven't yeah. enough thought of. I've got... I've got FF Masterworks Volume One, I think. Mm-hmm. Can I see from here. Oh, they're great here. stories, fantastic. I know stories. it's that's that's something that I've been meaning to do for years. Is read. I've I've never read the original Stan and Jack Fantastic Four stuff. <gasps> I've never read it all the way through. Brilliant! It's a blueprint of how to do comics. It's fantastic. My friend Stuart and my other friend Stuart actually, Stuart Allen, Stuart West, they've both raved about it to me in the past. So I should probably get it's on the list. Mm-hmm. I'll get to it Good. eventually. Some listeners, if you get spare copies of either the Essential Fantastic Four or if you've got a bunch of <laughs> Fantastic Four back issues lying around that you got for nothing one day, if you want to pass them on to me so I can read them, <laughs> that would be nice. Mm. That's a shout out to one of our listeners. We hope he likes that. Yes. Are you thinking of when Martha Jones and the Judoon were sent to the moon? Oh, no, I wasn't thinking of that. Oh, no. right, okay. <laughs> that's what I thought about. Okay, that's that's a, but that's kind of like more <laughs> beamed up as opposed to blasted off through space. Yeah, I just saw that, that sort of surreal huh. of building in space moment. So yeah. what, what was your thought? There is a Doctor Who connection still. Did you ever see the soap opera that live TV did called Canary Wharf? No. David Banks was in it, though, wasn't he? Cyber leader uh, David Banks, cyber leader from Doctor <laughs> Who, David Banks was in it. And if I remember rightly, the very last episode of that, they basically exposed the fact that Canary Wharf, the building in London, was actually right. a spaceship and it blasts off into space at the oh end. Oh my goodness. I'll have to try and find that. If I, if I recall correctly, that might be totally apocryphal, but I've, Did I've you, got this memory so of you, saying that. So you watched that then? I saw bits and pieces of Canary Wharf. Right. Because live TV was ridiculous. It was always entertaining. Right. Ah, okay. So that was, was that a, B- a BSB thing? It was, uh, it was Channel 13 on the NTL cable box at the time. <laughs> oh, right. I'm confusing it then. I was thinking, I was thinking of something else. Right. Channel 13, that was the one at the topless darts. And I remember one night coming down the stairs and seeing my dad hurriedly flick, flicking the channel and I was saying, ah, you're dirty. You were watching the topless darts, weren't you? Amazing. Channel 13. Ah, the, the late nineties. It also had the weather in Norwegian from Eva Bjertnes <laughs> or Anne-Marie Foss. <laughs> Were they the ladies that owned the trampoline? No, they didn't have a trampoline. However, Rusty Goff uh, also presented the weather bouncing in a trampoline. That's what I'm thinking of. On I'm confusing TV. my trampolines, yeah. yes. But Eva Bjertnes and Anne-Marie Foss would do the British weather in Norwegian and then they would do the weather in Norway in English, which is <laughs> hilarious. The, the, whole sh- the whole channel was just... Bonkers. Yeah, Absolutely I, I bonkers. used to watch bits of it because do you remember the early days? We're getting totally, we're 
going totally on a tangent here, listeners, and this is going to be, end up being a much longer episode than I think either of us anticipated. Oh, yes. Do you remember when Channel 5 started, me and my mate Barry, he mm-hmm. watched practically everything on it just because it was new. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, mm-hmm. it was just new. It was something else. We just watched everything. I think it's maybe probably why Netflix got so popular because people were like, right, this is an novelty. Anyway, back to the plot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Overall, these two issues, <laughs> I really enjoyed them. I liked the maturity of bringing the pollution aspect into the comic. Mm-hmm. Interesting they brought Vigilante back and, as we've said, didn't really involve him too much in the climax. And it was good that Green Lantern yeah. and Superman got to fly off into space. And it was good that Green Arrow got to be centre stage for so much of it. Mm-hmm. That was nice. And it's interesting that Hawkman did feature in it, but he doesn't appear in the roll call on the front pages of either of the issues. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Did he have it? I'm just going to, I'm going to, I can't remember now. He did have dialogue. We just summarised those pages. Yes, I, I summarised it. We probably will put a couple of the, the panels from, the, obviously, from the sequences we've summarised sure. onto the socials. Mm-hmm. But listeners, we would encourage you to seek these two issues out. They've been rep- reprinted many times. And originals actually aren't that expensive in a secondary market, so you'd probably be able to catch mm, low-grade true. copies of them fairly easily if you wanted to. Shall we jump to the letters then, Pizzi? Let's do that. So, we're skipping over the first letter in issue 82, because we don't want to read all of them. It's another letter from Donald F. McGregor. He's very positive about it all. But the second letter is from someone called Scott Gibson, from Sterling Colo. So where we go. What state could that be, Steve Higgins? Colorado. Colorado, obviously. Dear Editor, Whammo! Did the two-part story in issues 78 and 79 of JLA hit home? This is perhaps the finest material to appear in a DC magazine in years. If you don't want to take my word for it, turn to one of Colorado's largest newspapers, the Denver Post. Some weeks ago, it ran an article concerning the new trend in your magazines. One of the comics featured in the limelight was JLA 78, and the most explosive speech of the whole story was quoted. Green Arrow's also true words concerning pollution. I hope the majority of Denver's population read both the article and the issues. Denver is one of the many cities which suffers from water and air contamination. This story should prove another point. Comics are more than just an idle means of entertainment. What difference does it make just how an idea is presented? You've certainly got the point across, and the fact that the story is villains... The Doomsters turned out to be aliens doesn't weaken the point of the story at all. So what if it was an alien threat in this particular story? Man is managing to contribute to pollution himself. This story was an excellent means of showing what could happen to our world. No, I mean what is happening to our world. Yes. And it's sickening. Thank you for doing your part in the fight to end pollution. That letter could have been written yesterday. Yeah, very much (laughs) so. So thanks, Scott. Yep. Yeah. Depressing, isn't it? No response to that one. A lot of the letters make similar points in issue 82, so it's fine that we're not really covering all of them. The next one I will read goes like this. Dear Editor, An unfortunate circumstance with two-part stories is that the second instalment is sometimes a distinct step down from the first. Such seems to be the case with JLA 79. Much of the message behind the story, well conveyed in issue 78, seemed to be clouded in science fiction this time out. And although we were finally reminded that the focal problem of the story was Earth's as well as Monsan's by the grim circumstances which ended the story, we somehow get the feeling that author Denny O'Neill never quite finished getting his statement across. Um, well, I don't know. I, I kind of dispute that slightly. I mean, it was a, yeah. this is what could happen here is what we got really with the, mm-hmm. the sci-fi Monsan stuff, isn't it? Anyway, mm-hmm. 
Perhaps if part of the story's premise had been that Choke chose Earth to contaminate in particular because his work was half done for him on this besmogged, impurity-laden sphere, yeah, that's fair. Yep, the dire situation of pollution infringing on our ability to breathe safely and eat and drink with health in the future would have been driven home with more impact. Even in spite of the redeeming last panel of the story, which depicts factory smokestacks continuing to pour waste into the air, we still get the feeling that in the second instalment, author O'Neill decided to abandon his moralistic stand and use the pollution problem as a springboard for a delay of a fight sequence. If the pollution thing is written off as an alien plot to destroy the Earth, then the magazine won't get too heavy for those who like their GLA escapist style. I can't agree with that. In any event, though, that last panel seemed as if it was added as an afterthought so that number 79 would seem to conform with 78 as far as outward intents and purposes were concerned. I see his point. Yep. Mm. Yeah, you can definitely see that. Even with respect to the mechanics of writing, 79 is inferior to the previous three or four issues by comparison. In this tale, the writer, for some reason, suddenly seemed to want to spell everything out for us. After insulting us with that ridiculous title... He moves into a fight scene between the JLA and the Monsanian robots in which the JLA explains why it cracks jokes during fights and is fighting all the while. The dying Monassian story as told to Superman and Green Lantern was unnecessarily obvious. O'Neill's desire to represent that percentage of the American populace which does not seem to care about the pollution danger is understandable. But that he chose to do so with so implausibly simple-minded a character as Jason Crass is not. And that's another letter from Martin Pascoe, Clifton, New Jersey. I agree with quite a lot of his points there, actually. Yes, I do, yeah. It's one of those things, though, I mean, how serious do you want to go? Yeah, I mean, they could you could have expanded it into a third issue, but that would be quite even more depressing, yeah. really, wouldn't it? So, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Interesting points, though. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that a lot of these letters that we get from future pros are as insightful as this. They mm-hmm. do make mm-hmm. a lot of really good... Yeah. Anyway. Valid points. Their total response says, and now let's gear shift from low to high. And the next letter kicks off. Dear editor, what timing? Come slowly death, come slyly, along with coming of the doomsters, came out at a very good time. Part one arrived shortly before President Nixon's State of the Union message, and the second part came out shortly after. Since one of the main topics in this address was pollution, the JLA dramatised the problem even more. Wow, that's an interesting insight into uh, yes. politics of the time. Absolutely. It makes me realise, listeners, I must apologise that in my summary of the start of issue 79, I neglected to tell you that the story was indeed called Come Slowly Death, Come Slyly. <laughs> I can only apologise. Okay. Anyway. The letter continues. The cover of the March GLA was superb. Imagine Superman gasping for fresh air. Even if the story hadn't been expanded for three issues as I would have liked, page 22, panels 3 and 4 was so pleasing to read. I hate pollution. And one of my city's junior high schools, the one I go to, is a major contributor to pollution in Ann Arbor. We also are beginning to get polluted air from Detroit. And it makes me sick every morning when I go outside and actually taste the poisonous air. There are too many chokes in this world. And as the president said in his State of the Union address, The big question of the 70s is, shall we surrender to our surroundings or... Shall we begin to make reparations for the damage we have done to our air, to our land, and to our water? I say fight today! And that's from Jeff Ristein from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Jeff, I wonder if you're still with us. I hope so. I wonder if somehow you'll listen to this episode and it'd be nice to hear from you now. That's the best letter we've ever had. I think so, yeah. And the editorial response to that very briefly says, and keep up the fight through tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, editor. 
that's probably a good point to leave it on, actually. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, a very interesting episode. Mm-hmm. The return and revival in, sli- in a slightly confusing way of a Golden Age great and, a, and probably the heaviest political message we've had in any of the stories that we've done so far. And probably the most Bronze Agey of all the stories we've done so far as well. Mm. There definitely is a massive change, yes. Mm-hmm. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. <laughs> as Buffalo Springfield <laughs> sang a little while previous to this. Mm. Yeah, the times they are changing, as another wise man once said. Mm-hmm. Interesting, a lot of food for thought there. Listeners would be very interested to hear what you have to say. Yes, and you can get in touch with us at the Earth 2 podcast at gmail.com and tell us what you think of this story and these stories, our coverage of it, and indeed uh, how much you think things haven't changed since then as well. Sorry, that was very, very dull. <laughs> that was very depressing. No, it's fine. Make sure you follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram. We're at the Earth 2 Podcast and on Twitter at podcast underscore Earth 2 because we'll be posting up some lovely bonus content for this episode. Yes, we're posting, as well as posting the covers, we'll post um, a selection of panels in both issues. I've managed to track down a few foreign market covers mm. and, and a something else that I think is quite nice to pop up. Vigilante, we should have said, was one of those characters that popped up in the old Justice League Unlimited cartoon. Remember, he was... That's one of correct, the, yes. The guys you would sometimes see coming through the back or get the mm-hmm. line. And he made a cover appearance in the Justice League Unlimited comic book. So mm-hmm. I'll be posting that one as well. So there we go, listeners. That's what you've got to look forward to on the socials over the next week. I think he was also in the Brave and Bold cartoon at one point as well, I think. Was he? I haven't seen very many of those, so I'm not sure. No, me neither, but I believe he was. So yes, let's try and track that down. Interesting. Cool. And listeners as well as enjoying all the bonus material on our socials, if you could go to wherever it is you receive your podcast and give us a positive review, that would be lovely. If you're feeling super generous, you go to our coffee page. You'll find it on our link tree and you can buy Pete C the price of a beverage, which after the amount of time we spent recording this episode, he probably deserves. <laughs> yes. And on that note, <laughs> I've been Peter. I've been David. Listeners, thank you for joining us. We'll see you again very soon on... Yeah, Earth two, two podcast. podcast. <laughs> Settle up, partner. Yeehaw! Transmatter cube activated. Return coordinates set for Earth Prime. Hey, folks. Instead of our usual outtake at the end of this episode, I've got a confession to make. I misremembered the ending of Canary Wharf. The building does not take off like a spaceship. It dematerialises like the TARDIS. Yes. However, I'm going to put a link to the final episode of Canary Wharf. It is on YouTube in the show notes. So yes, you can watch it once, but I do strongly suggest you just watch it once. See you next week.